Well, friends, we come this evening to Hebrews chapter 8. I'll invite you to turn there if you don't mind. While I turn there. We'll read verse 1 through verse 13. That would be the whole of the chapter. Let's hear what the author of Hebrews wants to tell us tonight. He wants to tell us about the new covenant, that what you have in Jesus is better than anything else you have anywhere else. That's it. Better. Better covenant. Better Jesus. So let's come to that. Let's hear from our God. Now, the point of what we're saying, says the author of Hebrews, the point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne in the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent Then the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Look, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I'll be merciful towards their iniquities. And I'll remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The sense the reading of God's word. Let's pray. And that's his blessing upon the preaching and the hearing. The believing, the understanding, the doing and the loving of his word. Let's pray. Lord, show us the best in Christ. Show us the new power, the great blessings of Christ, our mediator. Give us those hearts and those minds that you talk about. You promised you give to us. Give it to us now, Lord, we pray. By your spirit, and by your word. Help us in Christ's name. Amen. The one time that I've been electrocuted uh, that I know of in my life, maybe it was a different time when I was younger, but the one time was uh, we were in the the rental house over here. We had just moved down. I was moving down. I don't think even Alexis had moved yet. 
and we had gotten a uh, washer and dryer somehow, somewhere. Maybe it had come with the rental, I forget. I went to plug it in, and I did not plug it in right. Did not go well. I was okay. I wasn't that bad. But it turns out that <clears throat> the washing machine, or the dryer, I guess it was the dryer, was obsolete. They came to look at it. And the folks said, you know, the rental people, they said, huh, I don't know what to do with that one. They haven't made those parts in years. Sorry, you're out of luck. And we eventually got one. Ed Falder helped us out. You know, it was very kind. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, it was not fun to get electrocuted because of an obsolete dryer. Nobody likes obsolete stuff. Nobody, nobody that I know is hankering to get in line for the for first car I ever drove. I think it was a 90s Ford Taurus for some reason. Nobody's ever getting in line for a 1990s Ford Taurus these days. Well, like it's obsolete. You don't want nothing. Not a lot of folks want that car. And yet what we're told this evening is that a lot of folks are in line for, for an obsolete God. A lot of folks are really in line for an obsolete style of God, an obsolete religion. A lot of people love it. They love getting electrocuted by obsolete dryers. That's what we have here, right? I mean, the whole point in one sense of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is better. I haven't hit on that a lot, but it's the whole point if you have to know about it. Jesus Christ is better. He's a better Melchizedek. He's a better high priest. We've been seeing that. He's the better apostle. We've been seeing that. He's better than the angels. We've been looking at that. This chapter one and chapter two. He's better than Moses, chapter three. And now we see he is the better high priest of a better covenant. Tonight we have the better high priest of a better covenant. And the temptation that we face, you know, the author of Hebrews has been looking at temptations. Don't drift. Don't go back. The temptation we face here is to go back to something that's obsolete. What you have in Christianity is better than anything else. I want you to understand what you have in Jesus Christ is better than anything else. That's why in the very first verse, we get the whole point. He tells you, by the way, the author of Hebrews is a great pastor. He's also a good teacher. He, he, he says, all right, here's the main point. I say that occasionally, too. I don't know if you listen, but I say it. I try to help you out. Here's the main point. Verse 1, we have this kind of high priest. Such a high priest. Well, what kind of high priest? We have the high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Then he says, verse 2, we actually have a high priest who is a minister. Do you know that the best pastor you ever have in your life is Jesus? That's not some hokey way of putting it. That's what the Bible says right here. We have a minister. His name is Jesus Christ. We have a worship leader. His name is Jesus Christ. So the next time somebody asks you, hey, does the rock have a worship leader? Say yes, please. And then say, yes, Jesus. The next time the Bible asks you, does, the, does your church have a minister? Say yes, and then answer Jesus. Because that's the answer, friends. He's in the true tent that the Lord set up. You see, the point here is that we have a high priest who is a king. We have a priest king. We have a king who is also a priest, like Melchizedek. That's last week. And the point is critical 
because he wants you to avoid drifting away. He is worried about these Christians who are in danger of losing the plot, in danger of drifting slowly away. And he teaches us by way of comparison. This, this whole chapter is basically one big argument about comparing the old to the new. This is what you do with your kids. Dads, moms, what you've done in the past, I'm sure. Your 14-year-old asks you, hey, what's it like to drive a car? And you say, well, dear, it's like driving a golf cart. Here's a golf cart. Go drive it. I'll be right next to you. Don't worry. And tell them by way of comparison. What's it like to cook a full course meal? And, and they, they ask you, you say, well, here, here, cook this cereal. It's sort of like that. Nowhere near like that, but sort of like that. It's, it's sort of like that. It's a comparison. You understand a comparison? And the author of Hebrews is telling us here that to live with Jesus Christ is like the difference between heaven and earth. It's like the difference between my cooking ability, cereal, and my wife's cooking ability, a beautiful feast. To live with Jesus Christ in the days of the new covenant is like what Alexis puts on the table, and to live with the old covenant is like what I put on the table. Right? If you live in the days of the old priesthood on earth, it's nothing. And yet his concern is everybody's still in line. Everybody's still in line for that covenant. We'll get to that towards the end as to why that's the case. But we're given two basic reasons here. If you want an outline, I'll give you an outline. Two basic reasons for the greatness of the new covenant. First, Jesus Christ gives a ministry that has greater power. There is greater power in the new covenant. Second, we'll get to it, richer blessings. Newer power, richer blessings. If you want to simplify it even further, power and blessings. There you go. First, Christ provides a ministry that has more power. More power in the new covenant than anything that Moses brought. We see this beginning in verse 2. He serves in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The true tent. Now, if I play with you a little psychological word association game, and I give you the word true, and I ask you to tell me what's the first word that comes to your mind, most of us, except for a couple of weirdos like me, most of us might will say false, true, false. Usual opposite of true. But in this context, the opposite of true is not false. In, this con- in the book of Hebrews, the opposite of true is shadow. The opposite of true is copy. The opposite of true is imitation. Imitation. The ministry of Jesus, the author points out, is so greater than anything in the Old Testament because Jesus serves in the real deal. He serves in the true heavenly tabernacle. He's playing in the major leagues. The Old Testament priests are in little league. They were playing with copies. They're playing with copies. We're we're given in verse 5 the uh, note that Moses was told to build the tent based on the pattern he saw on Mount Sinai. Verse 5, he's he's told, make everything according to what was shown you on the mountain, Mount Sinai. God spoke to him. God said, do this. That was an imitation pattern. It was not the real pattern, the true pattern. The author saying the Old Testament priest, when they went in on the day of atonement, the high priest on the greatest, holiest day, the day of atonement, he went into the holy of holies. He approached the Ark of the Covenant. He approached the angels. 
He knew he was going into the greatest symbol they had at that time on earth of God's presence. The mercy seat up in front, above it, where God came to dwell. He would sprinkle the incense. He would sprinkle the blood of sacrifice on the covering sheet of the altar. And Hebrews tells us that was all an imitation game. That was all a copy of the real deal. And Jesus Christ is the real deal. His ministry is vital and true and real before the very throne of Almighty God in the real tent, the true sanctuary God fed up. He's saying to people who wanted to go back to the copy, who wanted to go back to the Jewish ritual, who wanted to go back to the old covenant, why do you prefer imitation to reality? Why do you prefer imitation to reality? There's only one answer, really. You would only want to drift back to the Old Testament if your eye has gone away from looking at Jesus. Sometimes that happens with, uh, you've mentioned, y'all mentioned to me every so often that one of your relatives is going to a church and you're really sad because the church you're going to, you know, is not a place where Christ is proclaimed. Not, it's a sad day. You tell me, well, you know, they moved. They, they, they were going to this great, this, this wonderful church where the gospel was proclaimed. And then they're not going there. They, they made a, a poor choice. I hate it. I wish they'd have been different. But they're going to a place where the rigor and the vigor of knowing the ministry of God's word has been lost because something else replaces it. You never just take away Jesus without putting something else in his place. It can be as simple as a social reason. My kind of folks are there. I want to be there. It could be an attraction to smells and bells. It can be uh, where worship is done for me. I don't have to do anything. I don't, I don't say anything. It's all just done up there on stage. Not where worship is my heartbeat, my soul's greatest reality. You see, friends, this is why going back to the old covenant is not just for those people back in the day who were Jewish, but it's in your heart. This temptation lurks in your heart. It's ready to ask you to follow it. I mean, think about these folks. They were under persecution. They had lost their church building. The word of God, we are told in chapter 2, was a living and active and vital force in their lives. They were receiving the word of God from the pulpit. This guy was giving sermons to them. They were getting it, and yet they were drifting. They were getting all the goodies of Christ, and yet. Because the cheap substitutes felt so good. I was up at a party uh, in the north. My friends told me they had sweet tea. I was surprised. But I figured I would check it out. I grabbed a cup, poured some tea, had a sip, spewed it out of my mouth. I then looked down at the label, sweetened tea. See, my friends call sweet tea was sweetened. And you know as well as I do that anything that is sweetened is nowhere near sweet enough as our local brew, our local tea. It was imitation sweet tea. That's a silly example, but you get what the author of Hebrews is saying. Don't you know, friends, that what you have on offer is pure reality? What you have on offer in the gospel is true. You have a priest who can really deal with your guilt. You have somebody who can really deal with the midnight being awake and worrying about everything. You have somebody who can deal with your shame. 
You don't have the high priest who had to keep going every single year and killing the animals and standing in front of the altar. Why did he have to keep on doing it? Because it didn't work. It was a picture of the reality. That's why I think we pointed out last week, we'll point it out again here. Verse 1 tells us that Christ is seated. The reason he's not standing but sitting at the right hand of God is that he doesn't have to go back and try again. He has finished his work. He has finished his work. Therefore, your guilty conscience that keeps you up at night, there's actually a way to deal with that. There's cleansing that you can have. The sin that you are struggling with, that can be pardoned. You see, behind all the ways you and I try to deal with, try to imitate Christ, try to imitate his goodness, all the ways you try to copy Jesus in your character and your competence, you try to build up some virtuous Christian life apart from Christ, all the ways you try to do that, deep down, you and I are dyed with the stain of sin. You and I have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. No imitation can remove that stain, that dye, but Jesus Christ can. And he loves to come to you and say, my son, my daughter, I have ministered in the true tabernacle so your sins can be forgiven. Why would you want anything else? Why would you want anything else? Why would you go to some cheap imitation? Why would you want to drink a copy of a character of Christ? You only want the copy if you're scared of God's grace. That's the reality, actually, friends. You only want the copy if you want to keep the grace of Jesus Christ at arm's length because you think it's about you doing it. Maybe that's your problem, actually. Maybe that's where some of us are tonight. Keeping the power of the high priest Jesus at bay. No wonder you don't have peace with God. No wonder you don't have freedom for shame. Do you see, friends, the power of Christ It is so better, so stronger, that it can actually deal with your sins. Second, Christ brings in a new covenant that has richer blessings, richer benefits. To put it a little bit uh, crassly, Christ's benefits are greater. His benefits plan is better than anything else under the old covenant. Beginning in verse 6, the author shows us the rich benefits Christ brings. We see here, he says it right there. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Why? It has better promises. You get more stuff in the new covenant. Well, what do you get? Beginning in verse 10, we get three, three blessings, three benefits. The, your benefits package as a Christian includes these three things. First, The law of God. Verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. What's the first part of the benefits package? God's law. In the old covenant, where was God's law written? Stone. Stone tablets. How about now? This new covenant. The law is written on our hearts by a spirit of God. Now, it's true, of course, that in the Old Covenant, there are plenty of believers who had the law written on their hearts. Think of Psalm 119. That's a man who had the law of the Lord written on his heart. But the point the author is making here is that under the law of Moses, 
You just have the command. Circumcise your hearts. You just have the command. Obey. Write the law in your hearts. It gives the command, but no power to do it. But God does not keep his law on the outside. The beautiful thing about the new covenant is that he actually gives us a heart transplant. He transplants into us a new heart. He will transplant his law into our heart. He will write it on your heart so that you will delight in keeping it. And friends, the point is that the old covenant did not bring salvation by itself. The law of Moses cannot save by itself. It told them what to do. It did not help them do it at all. And what did the people say? I mean, what did they say at Mount Sinai? We'll do it, God. We'll obey. And what happened? They don't obey. A day goes by, barely, if that. They don't obey. They did not obey. So where did Old Testament believers get any salvation? Where did they get their power? Just look at what we've been looking at in the mornings. Where does Abraham get it? Where does Isaac get it? Where does Jacob get it? From the promise of God, the promise of the gospel over and over again. God says, I will be with you. I will keep you. I will hold you. I will provide. I will give you mercy. So when believers in the old covenant came to the day of atonement and they saw the copy, they saw the copy of the Ark of the Covenant. They saw the bulls being killed. They saw the blood being spattered. They looked through them to the real promises of God. They grasped to the one who said, these are shadows, but there's a true promise in Jesus Christ. There's one who's going to come. There's a prophet, priest, king who's going to come. There's a suffering servant who's going to come. There's a lamb of God who's going to come. And yet... Friends, part of our issue is that we still don't believe this promise is true today. We don't believe that God can write his law on our hearts. Some of us actually haven't experienced that yet. Paul says it this way. If you try to follow the law in your own power, you will end up killing yourself. Do you know the gap? The true Christian knows the gap. You know the gap? The gap between the command of God... And trying to follow his law and the promise of God and trying to follow his law. You can either try to follow God's law without the gospel or you can try to follow God's law with the gospel. Radically different lives. By the way, friends, this is why the attempts to keep kosher, this is why the fads that pop up in the Christian circles to keep Jewish rituals and feasts are worthless. They're powerless to do anything about your heart. They're powerless to help you to keep it. And the best way to see the gap between the Christian who gets the gospel and tries to follow the law and the Christian who, the person who doesn't get the gospel and tries to follow God's law is today. The graceless heart, the graceless person, the person without the law written on their heart, they hate Sunday. The worst day is Sunday. Why? Because you're trying to keep it up yourself. You're trying to keep up the work of the law in yourself. But when you trust in Christ, when you come to him, when you have his law written in your heart, what day becomes the gold standard of all days? Sunday. When God in his grace writes his law in your heart, it becomes a day to fly. It becomes a day to dance. It becomes, as the old hymn says, a day of joy and gladness. 
It's a really good test of where your heart is. Do you have this part of the benefit package of the new covenant? Here's the test. Are you struggling to work your way up the ladder to God? Are you saying, I will? Or are you saying, thy will? That's what Paul says, Romans 8, 3. What the law could not do, the law could not do, God has done. The law could not do, God has done by the sending of his son. God has done it. Do you know that? It's a very sure sign that you're a Christian. Not that you follow Christ perfectly, by no means, but that what was once dull slavery becomes dancing in the ways of God. Delightful, grace-fueled walking in his ways. So we have God's law first. Second part of the benefits package, briefly, is verse 11. Knowledge. You get a new heart, you get a new brain too, by the way. You get a new brain. Verse 11, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother. For everyone shall know me from the least and the greatest. What's he saying? The prophet Amos in the Old Testament, Amos 3.7 says this. The secrets of the Lord are only known to the prophets. So if we had been under the old covenant system, if we had been old covenant Jews, you and I would have no access to the mysteries of God. We would have to go find a prophet. And the Jews tended to think that only the special people could know God, only certain people, only the elite people. But God says in the new covenant, you don't need a prophet to have some vision. You don't need special revelation to know the mysteries of God. You have them in Jesus Christ. The secret's out. You have close knowledge. You have personal knowledge. All of us, through the gospel, by the Spirit, have access to Jesus Christ. Now, don't read this and think, of course, that we don't need teachers in the church. This is not saying we don't need teachers or pastors or any of that sort of thing. Paul himself says, Ephesians 4, that Christ has given gifts like teachers. But what's the point? The point is this. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you have equal access to, to him. An elder, a pastor, doesn't have special access to Jesus. Men don't have more access, nor, nor do women. Old folks don't have more access, nor do young people. It's a democratic access. It's a privilege to belong this day where God can come to all. And the author is saying, why would you drift back to the old days? Why would you want to go from this glorious new society Back to the old days. Why would you give up your access? And then really the greatest thing of all, verse 12. The third part of the benefits package. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Because we have the true priest, because of what he's done, God says he's going to have divine amnesia about your sins. He will remember your sins no more. You see, friends, you have a new heart, but your new heart's going to fail. You have a new knowledge, a new brain, but your new brain's going to make dumb moves and make mistakes. So when your new heart fails and you fail God and your new brain fails and you fail God, he says, I will. <coughs> I will be merciful. I will forgive you. I will give you full forgiveness, free forgiveness. The author is saying, are you playing in the shadowlands when God is offering you a resort home on the beach 
at C.S. Lewis, right? Are you playing in the Shadowlands? Are you content to go back to the old days? Are you looking at a copy of Jesus Christ? Or do you realize you have the real one who is a priest among us? You see, if the people broke the old covenant, the people had to die. But when the people break the new covenant, when you break the new covenant, what happens? Jesus has to die. That's why he died. And it's on the basis of his death and his life that God can give you a new nature. He can give you a new knowledge. He can actually give you real and true forgiveness. That's not just papering over the cracks. It's not a surface level plaster. It's not just covering over. But he can give you real and true and beautiful forgiveness. That's why the covenant's new. That's why the new covenant's beautiful. It works. He's done it all. His life, his death. You don't have to do one single thing to win God's favor. You will never be sure of yourself, but you can be sure of Jesus Christ. So why would you want to go back? Why would you want to line up for an obsolete product? And it's easy to hear all this talk about covenants and priests and sacrifices and think, yeah, that's ancient history. I'm in the 21st century. Not not relevant to me. I'm not going back to Jewish stuff. But friends, in their own ways, everybody's doing it. In their own ways, our hearts are tempted to do the exact same thing. Because there are always and ever only two ways to relate to God. Only two ways. I will do it or he must do it. I will do it or he must do it. And your neighbors are still saying, I will. And your heart is tempted to go back to saying, I will. You may not call it the old covenant. I guarantee you nobody on your street calls it the old covenant. The same thing. I'll manage my own life. Thank you very much. I don't need none of your help. I'll cope. I'll do my best. It won't work. It never has. It never will. From the start, God set up the old covenant to be obsolete. It was not designed to give the full and free forgiveness. All the believers knew, like we did, like we do, like we will, God's promises. All the believers from Adam to David and on cast themselves on God's mercy. I will never works because you haven't got God's law in your heart. And that's a struggle for the, the boys and girls among us. For the young folks, is God boring to you? Is he spoiling your fun? Of course he is, because God's law is not inside you, and you're not asking for it to be. No wonder it feels dreary and and difficult to keep God's law. You don't like it. Think about before you became a Christian. What was it like to come around Christians? Slavery, miserable. Or if you don't have a new brain, you don't have God's knowledge. He's somewhere vague. He's a vague religious force. He's some ethical, moral being. He's far, far away, irrelevant. But perhaps worst, if you don't know free forgiveness, if you don't know free forgiveness, and you're carrying around the baggage and the guilt and the shame, it's easy to say, I will. But what happens when I don't starts popping in, or I can't, or I haven't, or I know I haven't, You know you haven't done your best. God found fault with Moses and David. He's going to find fault with you too. So we have to move from I will to he will. I will to he will. Old to new. That God, the promise here, 
the great covenant promise, verse 10, I will be their God. They shall be my people. He doesn't say, you know, you'll be my people if you feel like it, when you feel like it, you know, on Tuesdays when the sun's up in the air. He doesn't say that. They will be my people. God will be your God. So what do you do now? What do you do if you're in the old, boring, podunk, obsolete religion? What if you're in the I will phase of your life? Call Christ. Call him up. Tell him, I can't keep your law. I've tried. I can't do it. And be free. Be free from the old religion. And come, come to the new one. Come to the God who is merciful, ever ready to receive you. Let's pray. Father, we come and we ask that you would show us your benefits and your blessings, even now. That your son poured out his blood, broke his body, that we might be saved. Strengthen us now to come to your table. Set aside these elements that are ordinary, bread and wine. Set them apart. For our remembrance, for our communion with you and with one another. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.